Hello, my name is Wang Yan, and I'm a reporter with News China. With our weekly News China podcast, we aim to gain insight into the trends and happenings in modern China through a historical lens. Today, we discuss the historical pivoting situation in between northern and southern parts of China. China's economy grew by 2.3% year-on-year in 2020, but there is a big imbalance among regions. In the top 10 provinces in terms of total GDP in 2020, only two, Henan and Shandong, are in the north. In the top 10 cities, Beijing is the only northern one. By contrast, in early years of China's reform and opening up about 40 years ago, the North contributed more than the South to the national economy. Analysts have noticed that the South has outperformed the North since the 1990s, and the gap has widened since 2013. Broadly speaking, the area to the south of the Huaihe River is China's south. It lies between the Yellow River in the north and the Yangtze River to the south. In history, there was also a process of a southward pivot of China's economic and cultural centers. China's archaeological activities and research focused on the country's northern area when Western archaeology was introduced into China in 1920s. As a result, the middle and lower reaches of the Yellow River were thought to be the origin and center of Chinese civilizations. This changed later. In the 1980s, Peking University professor Su Bingqi, a well-known Chinese archaeologist, put forward the proposition of six regional origins of Chinese civilization. Three are in the south, along the Pearl River and in the middle and lower reaches of the Yangtze River. The other three are in the Yellow River Basin in the north. The theory persists that the cradle of Chinese civilization had diverse origins. Archaeological discoveries have proved his right. Today, even the public know at least two examples of archaeological evidence of Chinese civilization in the south. One is Sanxingdui in the southwestern Sichuan province, which dates back 3,000 to 5,000 years ago. The other is the ruins of Liangzhu city in Zhejiang province, a coastal province south of Shanghai, with a history dating back 5,300 to 4,000 years ago. It is the largest city of that period discovered in China. The mainstream view of China's historical research holds that the Xia is China's first dynasty. Starting more than 4,000 years ago, the center of the Xia is thought to be in today's Henan province. Since then, the so-called Central Plain or Zhongyuan in Chinese, served as the center of the dynasties in the following 2,000 or so years. It mainly includes most of today's Henan province, eastern Shanxi, western Shandong, and southern Shanxi. All these provinces are in the north. Why did the north outshine the south for such a long time in early years of Chinese civilization? This is especially confusing when we know today that early civilization was also developing in the south. This 
may not be just the result of a natural process. The first imperial dynasty, the Qing, in the third century BCE, was based in China's northwest. There are many theories on how it finally prevailed over its six rival kingdoms. Professor Hou Xudong at Tsinghua University believes one of the reasons lies in an institutional arrangement of the Qing. According to Sima Qian's classical work, historical records written in the 2nd century BCE, one of China's greatest historical books, a small population lived on the vast area to the south of the middle and the lower reaches of the Yangtze River. They lived on rice and fish. There were abundant fruits and aquatic products. People there did not have to buy anything. They lived an easy life on this land with a rich food supply. So they did not have to keep extra food or wealth. No one suffered from hunger or cold. No one built up massive wealth. But it was difficult for the state to control the people who relied on nature, not the state, to enjoy such a comfortable and free life. Ho thinks the situation was similar in the north. The rulers of the seven kingdoms tried to turn these idle people into peasants who had to be organized to work on the land and serve as conscript labor and soldiers for the state. Peasants were created as a result, and the public was turned into a political resource of the state. The Qin in the northwest did the best job on this regard, so it became the strongest. In the same vein, the rise of the north may be the result of similar political operations by several dynasties after the Xiang. These successive dynasties were all concentrated in the north. By contrast, in civilization in the south, such as Liangzhu and Sanxingdui, there was a lack of constant institutional efforts after their birth and growth in early years. This could probably explain the rise of the north and the decline of the south. But the South seemed to have the momentum to rise. Even during the reign of the Qing's first emperor, Shi Huang, a political rumor that there were geomantic signs of the new emperor in the air in the southeast circulated among the public. Emperor Shi Huang traveled around the country several times. One of the purposes was to overwhelm the signs of a new emperor with his power as a real emperor. China was divided into three kingdoms at the end of the Eastern Han Dynasty in the early 3rd century. One of them, the Wu, mainly ruled the east coastal areas along the Yangtze River. It was founded by a warlord called Sun Jian and his sons who brought thousands of soldiers from the north. This was the first time that major military and political forces from the north moved to the south and made the south a center. The Wei in the Zhongyuan area was the most powerful among the three kingdoms. Its successor united China again in late 3rd century, but the Western Jin lasted no more than 40 years. It was quickly weakened by internal power struggles and external attacks from ethnic minority regimes from the north. To escape from the chaos and wars, Western Jin dignitaries, including royals and scholars, began to move to the south en masse. After the fall of the Western Jin, they set up the Eastern Jin, 
with Nanjing as the capital in the early 4th century. Since then, for about 300 years till the end of the 6th century, at least five regions were built in the south, one after another, including the eastern Jin. This was the second period when political, economic, social, and cultural forces moved to the south at a large scale and governed there for a long time. Meanwhile, there were also five regimes in the north. The connection between the north and south through both exchanges and wars was much deeper and wider than during the Wu Kingdom. In 581, the Sui Dynasty finally ended the chaotic divisions and brought the country together again. Its successor, the Tang, was established 36 years later. Although both the Sui and Tang rose from the north, historians thought the five previous regimes in the south had some impact on the institutional building of the Sui and Tang. The controversy is over how much the impact was. But the Grand Canal between Hangzhou, Zhejiang province, and Beijing proves the close economic links between the north and south and the rise of the south. The project began during the Sui and continued in successive dynasties, including the Tang. It served to transport economic resources, mainly food crops, from the south to the north. The Tang was hit hard by the rebellion led by the general An Lushan in the mid-8th century. Powerful local generals controlled different parts of the dynasty, but generals in the prosperous south along the Yangtze River remained loyal to the imperial court. Taxes from there kept the weak town alive for another 150 years. The momentum of the economic and cultural rise of the south was very strong and clear in the 11th century during the middle of the Northern Song Dynasty. During China's war of resistance against Japanese aggression in the 1930s and 1940s, Qian Mu, a prestigious Chinese historian, wrote one of his masterpieces on the general history of China. He concluded in the book that in the 11th century, the North, with its economy in decline, could not attract scholars. Well-known scholars of the Northern Song at that time, including Yan Shu, Fan Zhongyan, and Ouyang Xiu, were all from the South. They were respected as academic leaders who set the tone of the ethos of the time. The South eventually became the economic pilot of ancient China during the Southern Song, which began in the early 13th century. The Southern Song was established after the north of China was occupied by Mongol invaders. Its capital was today's Hangzhou, Zhejiang province, in the Yangtze River Delta. The prosperity in the south and the Southern Song's rule made the Southern Song the richest dynasty in China's history, although it was weaker, shorter, and smaller than other major imperial dynasties of China before and after that. The position of the south especially the southeast, as China's economic and cultural center, was further consolidated by the rule of the Southern Song for one and a half centuries. It remained so in the successive dynasties. A national imperial exam was held in 1397 in the newly founded Ming Dynasty. This had been the traditional way of selecting imperial officials since the early 7th century. All 51 successive candidates of that year were from the south. 
Scholars from the north were angry. They signed up claiming that the chief examiner from the south was biased in favor of candidates from the south. Zhu Yuanzhang, the Ming's first emperor, ordered a thorough probe, but no irregularity was found in the process of the exam. This result disgruntled officials from the north. They joined a protest against the result of the exam and the investigation. Zhu Yuanzhang was furious about this partisan division, but to appease the political and cultural forces from the north, he killed several innocent winners and investigators of the exam from the south. The chief examiner, who was in his 80s, was sent into exile. Then the emperor held another exam at the imperial court. 61 candidates were admitted, all were from the north. As a result, two different exams with the two different lists of successful candidates were held within the same year. However, this brutal intervention from the top in favor of the North could not change the weak North versus the strong South. In the following years, including during the last dynasty of Qing, all emperors had to consider how to balance the two cultural and political forces in the imperial exam to secure the imperial power. For a long time, the exam had to be held in the north and south separately, but there were always more successful candidates from the south than those from the north. This is one of the important symbols that the dominance of the south was unshakable across the board. The conventional explanation for the rise of the south in China holds that the massive flows of people from the north for hundreds of years since the Eastern Jin in the early 4th century brought advanced technologies, productivities, and culture to the South. These factors matched well with the good natural endowment of the South. Economic development is at the core of this theory. A new theory posits that the elite group of the South took the initiative to integrate the political order and cultural style of the North into the system of the South. Their purpose of doing so was to add new legitimacy to consolidate their own advantage in the process of the political expansion of the North to the South. The result is unprecedented proactive and creative integration and interaction between the North and South in all aspects. This theory seems to be more convincing than the conventional one and a more academic investigation is needed. This is the end of our podcast. Thank you to our writer, Dr. Zhang Yue, editor and translator, Li Jia, and copy editor, Kathleen Nade. We hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for listening. See you next week.